We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're just going to jump right into the text. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with inexpressible joy and full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray today, God, that you would teach us the meaning of joy, that we would be able to walk away from here with a clear understanding of your joy and what it means to us and what it does to our life. Please, God, only you can speak. Only your spirit can touch hearts. So I pray, God, that right now you would fill this room with your presence and that we would just go on this journey together to learn your heart and your character and who you are. In your name, amen. So, I love this passage. Me and Pastor Jamie were talking about this passage. We're both teaching it this morning. And I just noticed three things that just map out joy in this passage. One, there's joy in the hope of heaven. Another is there's joy through trials. And thirdly, we can have joy only through Christ. I think sometimes this time period after the holidays is one of the hardest times to find joy because when it comes to Christmas, we all had our holiday expectations. We wanted things to look kind of like a Norman Rockwell painting and everything's rosy and smiley and perfect. But by the end of the holidays, a lot of times we, we face reality and things didn't go quite the way that we wanted. And it's actually true that holiday, post-holiday depression is a huge problem, especially in our country. A lot of times people put such high expectations on Christmas, but things didn't go exactly the way they wanted. Maybe it wasn't the gift they got, or maybe the family fought instead of being perfect. But a lot of times it can even just be you miss your family when your family goes back home uh, after staying for the holidays. There's just a lot of sadness. And sometimes it's Christmas came and went like a blur and it's like, where's the joy? Like, how do I get it back? Um, And we can, as Christians, sometimes think, you know, doesn't the Bible say I'm always supposed to be happy? Isn't there a verse somewhere that just says I'm always going to be happy? Well, it's important for us to know our Bibles. For example, take a look at this verse. It says, if thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. So we hear this verse and we can think, you know, if we just read it, we're like, yes, that makes sense. And I worship God, so therefore I should get everything I want. Uh, Everything should be perfect for me. Because, you know, uh, it's Christmas. I even sang carols, so that's like extra worship on top of worship. I sang more songs than normal. Well, context is important because does anyone know who actually was the one who spoke this verse? This is Satan. This was when Satan was tempting Jesus. So it's important for us to know context. There's a lot of things that Jesus actually didn't say. For instance, Jesus never said, as a Christian on earth, your life will be perfect. He never said, follow me and all your dreams will come true. 
He never said you, you will never go through anything difficult. You will never, ever be sad. And happiness is what you should pursue above all else. Jesus never said any of those things, but Jesus did have a lot to say about joy. And that's what we're going to explore today. What is joy? What does the Bible have to say about it? Um, for a definition of joy, which I think is important at the beginning to define it, I want to turn to one of my favorite theologians. It's this guy, Rob Salvato. Um, <laughs> he says... Joy is different than happiness, which is tied to good or bad circumstances. Joy is an attitude of the heart, a rest in the Lord, an assurance he is in control, and a satisfaction in your identity in him. So I hear that, and I'm like, joy sounds amazing. Joy sounds wonderful. How, how do I get it? Well, sad to say, many people look for joy in the wrong places. Many people are chasing after a false joy. How do they do it? Well, many people, see, everyone has a hole in their heart. And I believe it's a God-shaped hole and no other piece is going to fit in right. But many people try filling that emptiness and that longing with things like drugs or alcohol, sexual relationships, job success, vacations, holidays, fame, money. Speaking of money, there's a lot of things money can buy. For instance, the, the glam burger. It's for a burger. It's got lobster, caviar, gold flakes, black truffle brie. Oh my goodness. It it features a duck egg intricately coated in gold leaf. (laughs) Okay. And then (laughs) we've got the Bellissima pizza. It's $1,000 and it features six different kinds of caviar in the topping. I don't know about you, but none of these food items, these expensive food items can produce real joy. They can barely produce happiness. They can mostly just produce a stomach ache. Eight types of fish eggs on a pizza. That's, that's gross. Um, Let's look at the words of uh, Soren Kierkegaard. He's a famous theologian. This guy's great. He says, most men pursue pleasure with such breathless haste that they hurry right past it. I think this is so true. A lot of times in life, we try so hard to be happy. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to get as many material possessions as we can. But life goes by so fast, so quickly. And at the end of it, so many people realize they never were actually happy. They spent their life trying to achieve happiness trying to achieve joy, but in the end, like King Solomon says, it was all vanity. That's the richest man in the world at the time, basically the king of the world in the Bible. Uh, He looks at the end of his life and says, you work so hard, you toil by the sweat of your brow, but at the end of it, you die, and somebody who didn't work for what you worked for takes over what you were working on, and they're not going to be as good as you are, and it's just, it's all a waste, he says. You're like, Aaron, this is, this is depressing. Um, well, we're going to get to the joy, okay? <laughs> but we've got to get through this stuff first. So um, this quote here reminds me of a story where uh, I was walking on the beach, and I was actually praying about these type of passages, and I was asking God, you know, show me, uh, just give me something, Lord, give me some inspiration. And, and he showed me this great illustration. It was a total live illustration in front of me. Um, there was a man and his wife, and they were walking down the beach. And the man pulls out this little bag of bread. And he literally, like, as he pulls it out, an army of seagulls arrive. And they just, there's like thousands of these seagulls. And the man's throwing the bread, and the seagulls are like trailing along happily, just picking up the bread. But then when the bread runs out, the seagulls lost interest, and they just stood there. And then they flew away. 
And I think so many times we can trail behind Jesus, kind of just picking at the crumbs of happiness that he drops behind, and then stopping when we feel like our happiness runs out. But Jesus is actually carrying this whole loaf of joy. He doesn't want us just to trail behind with the crumbs. He invites us, be my disciple. Follow me. Don't just trail behind me. Actually follow me. Walk beside me. Enter into my story. Enter into the fullness of my joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis had this to say. He said, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. And it's so true. It reminds me of a recent story I heard of a girl named Asena O'Neill. She's a high school student. She's now 19 years old. But in high school, um, starting at a very young age, around 13, you know, she starts a blog and a YouTube channel and Instagram. If you don't know what that is, if you don't know what that is, ask your kids. Um, But uh, basically, it's posting pictures to the internet, and uh, a lot of people are into it nowadays. And she said she became consumed by it. Listen to what she has to say. She says, I fell in love with this idea that I could be valuable to other people. I developed an addiction to be liked by others. And she was liked by others. She developed half a million Instagram followers and 250,000 YouTube followers. Um, She got sponsorships, modeling deals. This year, she came out with a statement. She said, I'm so unhappy. I've been chasing false joy. I'm empty inside. I'm living for fame. And it's, it's not adding up to what I thought it would be. And so she ended up deleting everything, all, everything she had worked for, uh, all of her online presence. She deleted it. And the question is why. I want to show you from her own words just to give a perspective of modern day fame chasing. She says, when asked, why did you do it? She said, well, my 16-year-old self would have been like, come on, girl, you have the dream life. So why did I feel so lost, lonely, and miserable? She says, I was addicted to what others thought of me simply because it was so readily available. I was severely addicted. I believed how many likes and followers I had correlated to how many people actually liked me. I didn't even see it happening, but social media had become my sole identity. I didn't even know what I was without it. She says, a 15-year-old girl that calorie restricts and excessively exercises is not hashtag goals. Uh, She says, all my photos were fake. They were strategically posed to make me appear how I wanted to be perceived. I just want younger girls to know this isn't candid life or cooler inspirational. It's contrived perfection made to get attention. I would think, please like this photo. I put on makeup, curled my hair, put on a tight dress, big uncomfortable jewelry. Then I took over 50 photos until I got one that I thought you might like. Then I edited it for ages on several different programs and applications so you could feel some social or so I could feel some social approval from you. She says there were days when the only thing that made me feel good that day was the photo I posted. How deeply depressing. If you find yourself looking at Instagram people and wishing your life was theirs, realize you only see what they want. The same goes for Pinterest and all these other things. Uh, I spent every day looking at a screen, viewing and comparing myself to others. It's easier to look at shiny and pretty things that appear happy than stopping and just getting real with yourself. Without realizing, I've spent the majority of my teenage life being addicted to social media, social approval, social status, and my physical appearance. Then she says, people should know my life was edited and contrived, and I don't blame anyone but myself. Wow. This is a rare moment of honesty from people in my generation saying, okay, this idea that we've built up, that fame and success and people liking us and our appearance and everything just looking picture perfect from the outside, 
it doesn't actually live up to the expectation that that will produce happiness. You will look happy on the outside. All your pictures will look perfect, but on the inside, you're still struggling. Listen, Satan built his empire on false hopes and happiness. We need to remember these awesome words from C.S. Lewis. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. I love that. See, Satan's desire, his deepest desire is to fill us up with false hope and false happiness. But just like a cake that's been poisoned, it may taste good for a second, but it eventually kills us. God's deep desire, the business of heaven is joy. God looks at you and he's not thinking, how can I make these people into my cheap slave labor? How can I make these people just do whatever I want? And No, God looks at you and he says, I love you. My deep desire is to produce joy in your heart. If you're sitting here without any joy, if you feel empty, if you feel discouraged, you need to know that God is so passionate about filling your heart with joy. But a lot of times, we can face pain and suffering, and this can be a roadblock to our joy. I remember, for me, it just reminds me of this story when I went with my dad last year to New Zealand and Australia. We were um, going around on this missions trip, and one day, I decided to go out because I love to just go out and adventure and walk, and so I had just the full experience. You know, I had my phone for taking pictures of the New Zealand uh, atmosphere. I had my iPod to listen to music while I walked. Um, I had a digital camera to take pictures. I don't know why I needed my phone and my camera, but anyway, I was going for it. I was going crazy. And one day, I stopped um, in this Australian beach, and it was amazing. It was so cool. They had a, like a wading pool uh, built out of the rocks. There was like a swimming pool built into the beach. It was, it was so amazing. And I'm standing there on the rock, and I've got my earbuds in listening to music. I've got my camera taking pictures. I've got my phone texting my wife, this is so cool. Oh, you've got to come out here. I can't. Um, <laughs> it was really cool. I'm sitting there, and I'm just looking at all of the awesomeness. I'm standing on the edge of this rock, kind of like the little mermaid, you know, when she, like, climbs up on that rock. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, that moment, just without the long, flowing hair. Um, And I'm just like, this is so great. And I look down to, uh, you know, figure out something on my camera. And as I'm looking down, like, at 60 miles per hour, this wave comes, slams into the rock, and comes up above completely over me. Like it was like the water was behind me. Like it was like feet behind me. So just like completely drenched head to toe. And immediately I'm just like, oh my goodness, that was so unexpected. And I run over to the rocks and I pull out my camera, my phone. I'm taking out the batteries out of everything. I'm throwing all my electronics out on the rocks. And then I'm like, oh, I'm super wet. And I've got to walk like three miles back to the hotel. Like, oh, I got to do something. So I, I rip off my shirt and I put it on the rocks and I'm trying to dry my shirt. And I roll up my pants and, and uh, take off my shoes. And it didn't make things better. Like the sun wasn't drying anything. Everything got sandy and itchy. And I look over and there's this old Australian man just laughing at me, just sitting on the rocks, just like, <laughs> stupid American. And <laughs> I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, it, it ruined my day. Ruined, it, my phone was okay. It ruined my camera. That's broken. Ruined my iPod. It was, it was great. Great experience. But for, for some of you, tragedy can strike like that. 
It's unexpected. You're minding your own business. Everything's going good. The world is beautiful. The world is wonderful. And all of a sudden, you're hit with pain and suffering. You're hit with some sort of catastrophe in your life. And suffering makes us vulnerable. Satan loves to steal our joy. Here's a very simple way, and I'll use a humorous illustration. But one of the robbers of joy is discontent. It's complaining. It's God or it's Satan causing us to look at our life and complain. Have you ever had a rough vacation where you complained? Yeah? Anybody want to admit that? I've complained on a vacation. Yeah? Okay. Okay. Some honest people. Here's some real complaints from people on vacation. Um, These were submitted to a tour guide agency. Um, On my holiday in India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food. We booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us we had to bring our own swimsuits and towels. We assumed it would be included in the price. The beach was too sandy. We had to clean everything when we returned to our room. No one told us there'd be fish in the water. The children were scared. Although the brochure said that there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawer. Come on. I was bitten by a mosquito. The brochure did not mention mosquitoes. And then finally, when we were in Spain, there were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish. No one told us there'd be so many foreigners. (laughs) Okay. So, okay. Let's bring it back to the reality. For us as Christians... Life isn't necessarily always going to feel like a vacation, but here's the reality for us. We're free. Like We have an all-expense-paid life. The expense for every wrong thing we've ever done. For those of you who believe in Jesus, it was paid on the cross. We're given purpose. We have a God who helps us. We have what no one else on the planet has, a God who is invested in our life. That's amazing. And Satan, he looks at many of us who are followers of Jesus and he says, well, if I can't take you to hell, I'm going to make your life on earth a living hell. That's what he wants to do. He says, I can't condemn you. I can't drag you down with me, but I'm going to cause you to look around and be discontented and complain. And guys, it will rob us of our joy. Here's another thing that robs us of our joy is despair. And we have so many verses telling us to rejoice. Like, for instance, in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I remember when I was a kid, I'd be sleeping in bed, and all of a sudden, my mom would bust in my room, and she'd be in full Keith Green mode. She'd be like, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then she'd be like, this is the day that the Lord has made. Like, she'd be going crazy and singing these songs. And I would just be like, mom, get out of my room. I don't want to get up. Here's the reality, though. For a lot of us, when we're going through grief and despair, when we're going through hard things, and we see a verse, you know, like, rejoice in the Lord always, we can feel like my teenage self, like, just, I don't, I don't want to get up. Like, stop telling me to rejoice. Stop telling me to be happy. Stop telling me to trust in the Lord. Like, I, I'm in this bed of despair. I don't, I don't want to get up out of this. Or even if I did, I couldn't. Um, actor Keanu Reeves has had a tragic life. At the age of three, his father left the family. At the age of 23, his closest friend, River Phoenix, died of a drug overdose. Eight months into his girlfriend, Jennifer's pregnancy, their child died. 18 months later, Jennifer would die in a car accident. And Keanu Reeves says, grief changes shape, but it never ends. But listen, that's not true. Because in the Bible, we clearly see in Revelation 21.4 that one day Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. We have such a hope to look forward to. 
Don't let the enemy rob you of your joy by sleeping in that bed of despair. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God takes all the enemy throws at us and uses it for good. See, God is with us. That's, that's this whole Emmanuel thing we've talked about. Emmanuel means God with us. That's why God sent Jesus, his son, so that God could be with us. See, God says to us, you're going through a hard time. Yes, listen, I will get you out the other side and you will be stronger because of it. I am with you. The former CEO of uh, Compassion International, Wes Stafford, says, joy is a decision, a brave one, about how you're going to respond to life. You see, Satan says, give up and give in to me. Whenever you're going through hard times, just, just let your guard down, slip into that comfort zone, and just cruise. Just give in to those old sins, give in to those old desires. They'll give you joy, but they'll do nothing but leave you empty. Jesus, when you're going through a storm, what do you want to hold on to, a life preserver or an anvil? You want to hold on to the life preserver. Jesus is the only one who can preserve your life in the storm. The enemy will just drag you down to the bottom. Jesus says, hold on to me. A brave response leads us to grow closer to the Lord. And Paul gives us some great advice in Romans. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Be patient because God is doing a work. Have joy in the hope of the future of heaven and what God is going to do. And he says prayer is powerful. Prayer is a response to hard times. Uh, Theologian Karl Barth, I love this quote. This is so good. Listen to this. To collapse the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. It is so good. You're getting beat down. The world is tough. The world is hard. You want to fight back? then get on your knees and pray. Turn to God. Spurgeon says, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. That's so good. When we combine our joy and prayer, what is produced? It's praise, which is what we're created to do. Like, I don't know about you, but I want to do what I was created to do. Praise. That relationship with God, that love relationship, it's, a, it's circular. It's like we praise him, and he blesses us, and he loves on us, and we praise him back, and it just goes on and on and on. And so many times God is loving us, but we are failing to praise, and we remove ourselves, like old Pastor Chuck said, from outside of the spout where the blessings come out. So many times we can remove ourselves by complaining and being given to grief and discontent. C.S. Lewis says, hardship often prepares ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. And some of the godliest people I know in my life are the ones who've been through the most. Now, you might be here today, and you might say, Aaron, listen, my life is full of hardship. In fact, I look at my life, and there's so much garbage in it. Like, you have no idea. There's so much just messed up stuff in my life. And it just, I try to be happy. I try to be joyful. I want to I show you something because God's answer to these statements is always joy. Now, there is some artists in um, Portland who, they have this exhibition where they work with trash. It's like trash art, you know? And I mean, it's pretty artistic, right? Pretty great. <laughs> some guy's like, what are you talking about? That's a pile of trash. Yes, it is. But it has been positioned so that in the darkness, all you see is trash. But once you turn on the light something else is illuminated. 
It's amazing. They position this trash in such a way that through the light, the shadow reflects. Like just to think of the intricate detail it took to turn that trash into something so awesome. Here's another, here's another one. You've got just lumps of wood. Doesn't really look that great. You turn on the light. You've got people. So cool. Here's another one. Pile of trash. We look at it, right? Just a bunch of junk, fast food cans and things like that. You turn on the light. You've got people looking at a sunset. Another pile of wood looks messy, unorganized, lumped together, even dangerous. Turn on the light, you've got a man. And finally, a bunch of nasty old cans, rusty, dirty, holes in them. You turn on the light and you get this beautiful city. Now listen, we just did something. I don't know if you noticed, but we just did something. We, we actually rewired our brains. You, you may not have caught it. Here's what we did. At the beginning, when I showed you the trash, what did you see? You saw trash, right? But around the second or third or fourth time we looked at the trash, you anticipated something. You saw something beyond the trash. In fact, you expected that once the light came on, you would see something beautiful. That's what God wants to do with your minds about your life. Because God is so looking to transform everything we see as junk, everything we see as worthless, everything we see as garbage. God says, just give me a chance to shine my light on it and illuminate it and turn it into something wonderful. Never doubt what the Lord can do. God wants to transform our life. God is the God of just unbridled, brimming potential who wants to change and transform everything in our life. Spurgeon had this to say, your joy itself shall be turned to, or your sorrow itself shall be turned into joy, not the sorrow to be taken away and joy to be put in its place, but the very sorrow which now grieves you shall be turned into joy. God not only takes away the bitterness and gives sweetness in its place, but turns the bitterness into sweetness itself. So amazing. If you don't believe me, read your Bible. There are so many stories of God doing this. It's one of his biggest things to take the broken and put the pieces back together and make it into something beautiful. And you might be here today and you might wonder, you might say, why, what about pain? Why the pain? God, why? Why pain? Why suffering? You might say, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? You might be going through something right now where you're like, God, I don't know where you are. You're not alone in that statement. That's what Jesus said on the cross. When Jesus hung on that cross, he said, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? God, have you left me? God, what's going on? God's silence doesn't always mean his absence. Because as Jesus was hanging on that cross, asking God, where are you? So often as we ask that, God's answer was a resilient, I am right here with you. And he didn't say it with words in that moment. He said it with an earthquake, with lightning, and with a torn veil. I love this picture. If some of you guys, some, many of you guys have been here for a long time. You've, you've been going to church here longer than me. So you know what this is about. But just, I'm just going to go through this in case there's anyone here who doesn't. So in the beginning, God creates people. And they sin. They mess up. They make a mistake. To sin is just to make a mistake, to do something different than the will of God. And sin, just a simple, tiny sin, created this wall of separation. God was perfect. We were imperfect. 
There was separation between us. The God who loved us was now, there was this wall of separation. And we as people were doomed. And this, there was a veil that the Jews had in their temple that represented this separation. It was this giant curtain hung in the temple. And the imperfect people couldn't go past the curtain because that's where God's perfect presence was. In fact, if you wanted prayer, if you wanted prayer for anything, if, if, if our church needed prayer, then one of the pastors would have to go behind that curtain. And if we had done anything wrong that day or thought anything wrong or just acted human in any way and we weren't perfect, we'd be struck dead. That's how powerful this perfect separation was. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, when he gave his last breath, God answered with an earthquake, with lightning, and this curtain in the temple. I love that this is in the Bible. This curtain tears in half. And it's just not this little thing like, whoa, that was some crazy earthquake. It was tearing our curtains in half. No, it was God specifically saying the separated wall between me and people is now gone. And if they go through Jesus, they can get to me. It's just, it's, it's so great. Because God was literally, he was the God who refused to live without us. Like, what does that mean? He died so he could be with us. He refused to live without his people. That's, that's amazing. That gives me joy to know that God loved me so much that he died on that cross for me. And if you're struggling today, C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Jesus paved the way to those things. Jesus is the way to joy. How do we get joy? The hope we live for produces joy. Why do we look forward to Christmas? For a lot of us, it's, it's weird. I don't know if you get it, but there's like this nostalgic longing that is produced a lot of times. Like, is anybody with me? Like, when it comes to Christmas, when you think about Christmas, you start thinking about a simpler time and childhood and the way things were. And you look at those Norman Rockwell paintings. You're like, yes, that's how things were back then. Like, I'm longing to go back to that Christmassy time. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's not just Christmas we experience this. We experience it all the time. I don't know about you, but I experience all the time this deep desire for something greater. I think for a lot of us, that's why we love, like, fantasy. Like, does anyone here, like, love, like, fantasy novels or, like, Star Wars, Narnia, like, any of that stuff? Yeah? Like, I love that stuff. Like, when I read fiction and stories, it just puts me in this place where I long for this, like, world, like, this other world. I'm like, there's got to be something else out there. Um, C.S. Lewis discovered a term, a German term, for this longing, and it's uh, called Zangzucht. Anyone want to say it with me? Zangzucht. You learned some German today. Uh, Zangzucht is this inconsolable longing in the human heart for we know not what, a yearning for a far familiar, non-earthly land one can identify as one's home. Listen, if you're here today, and just no matter what you do, you feel like it's not enough. You feel like no matter what you do, there's still something missing. It's because, as C.S. Lewis says when he comes full circle in this, this idea, he says, if I find myself in deep desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The truth is we were made for heaven. Like God created us for a world without all the junk, without all the garbage, a perfect world. And I'm so excited. Does anyone else get excited about heaven? 
Like, heaven's going to be great. Like, heaven is going to be really, really amazing. Uh, Some people think it's just, you know, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, and you're like a naked baby, like in those paintings. It's like, that's... Where did they get that idea? Like, no, that's, that's not it. No, like the Bible says there's going to be new heavens, new earths. Like I just, my mind starts tripping out when I think about it. Like it's going to be incredible. It's going to be everything we love about this place and the universe, but without any limitations, any sin, any death, any fear. And it's going to be even better. Like, it's, we can look at this as like a template for what it might look like, but it's going to be even better. The Apostle Paul said he saw it, and he came back, and it's like, there's not words to even describe. Like, I can't describe to you how amazing it is. For instance, like, think of it this way. Like, if, if you're a baby in a womb, what do you know? You, you know the womb. The womb is your room. Like, that's all you know. You know about warmth and fluid, because you breathe fluid, in your lungs. I don't know if you knew that, but when you're a little baby and like you, you actually, we're like part fish or something. When we're little, like we breathe fluid. And then finally, when we're born, we don't breathe fluid anymore. We breathe oxygen. But before that, the oxygen comes to the umbilical cord. It's just this, so that's, that's your world. That's all you know. You're just this weird little person in this space and there's nothing. If I went, if I went, like if I could speak to a baby in a womb and tried to explain how awesome Star Wars and pizza is, the baby wouldn't be able to understand it because it doesn't have any frame of context for what that looks like. All it knows is the womb. Right now, guys, we're in, we're in the womb. And it, sure, it might seem great at times and terrible at other times, but when we're finally born into that new reality, when we pass from this reality into that heavenly reality, it's going to be like, like our minds are going to be blown at how amazing it is. I am so excited. Some people are held back, though, by improper view of God. And how you see the Father will change how you see life. This is behind me a picture of uh, Beethoven. You know, he's just this brilliant composer, but many of you probably don't know his backstory. His father was obsessed with him being the next Mozart. And so he would make him practice piano every day. And if he made one mistake, he would beat him severely. He was an alcoholic man who would lock his child up in the basement. Just think about what Beethoven went through. Many of you guys might have this view of God, maybe. Maybe there's some of you here where you see God as just this divine perfectionist who's just ready to beat you into submission if you don't follow him and if you don't listen to his rules and if you can't be perfect, but listen The Bible tells us how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Like God's love is so great for you. He is not an abusive Father in the sky. He is a perfect God who does not require us to be perfect. And that is why he allowed his son to die so that we could attain perfection only through Jesus' sacrifice. God doesn't look at us and expect perfection. He just expects us to follow behind his son. It's amazing. Who's ever heard of the simple statement as we wrap this up? Jesus, joy, or no, Jesus, others, and you, right? Joy, Jesus, others, you. It's a great way to wrap this up as we talk about joy. The first thing I want to talk about is Jesus. Joy is found in and through appreciating and experiencing Jesus. Um, In Psalm 1611, it says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. In Jesus, it's the fullness of joy. You can't have it apart from Jesus. 
I remember um, listening to something my former pastor Evan said. He's a musician, he's a worship leader, and he's talking about, you know, when you go to a secular rock concert, you know, and just, you know, the music's booming and the musicians are playing really hard and the music's escalating. A lot of times what will happen in a rock concert is, you know, everyone just gets so full of excitement about the music that they kind of throw their hands in the air or they pull out their lighters or nowadays it's their phone and they start flashing their light. And it's like everyone's reaching for something. Everyone's like trying to attain this, like we want this feeling to last forever. But at the end of the concert, it goes away. And then Evan said, How amazing is it that we as Christians, when we stand in a worship concert or just a worship service and we lift our hands, we can actually reach out and touch what everyone else is trying to attain. We can connect with the God who created us and loved us. That's what everyone's craving. Maybe there's some of you here today and you're craving that that touch from that affectionate, loving, godly father who wants to bless you and lead you and love you and give you purpose. God has created a way through Jesus. God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. I'm not saying that to try to make you feel bad. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm not trying to say, hey, you know, we Christians are better and everything you believe is nonsense. Like, we're the best. No, I'm trying to let you know lovingly and kindly there is a missing piece to the puzzle of our existence, and it's Jesus. And without it, we won't have what we're looking for. Spurgeon says the greatest joy of a Christian is to give joy to Christ. How do we please God? How do we love him? Well, one, spend time with him. Just enjoy him for who he is. If you haven't pulled out your Bible, make a commitment. Next, like New Year's coming, commit to spending time with God, not out of religious duty, but because God died on a cross so that you could spend time with him, so that you could receive from him. But Jesus says clearly to us, he says, hey, listen, this is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. If you're looking for joy, love people. Love your family, love your spouse, your kids, your friends, love the stranger, love the poor, love the homeless, and even love enemies is what Jesus said. That's his recipe for joy, is love everybody, the people that it makes sense and the people that it doesn't make sense. That could be a whole nother study, but it won't be. I'm wrapping it up. Billy Sunday says, if you have no joy in your walk with God, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Too true. And you know what? We're always leaking as Christians. God fills us up with the Spirit, and we're leaking either two ways. One, we're spending the Spirit. We're blessing people. We're loving people. We're going out. We're showing God's love and joy, and and, and we're leaking, and we need to be refilled. But a lot of times, we can leak just because God fills us so much. What happens when you fill a cup overflowing, and then it doesn't get used? If you're walking with that full cup, it's going to spill out all over the place and be wasted, right? A lot of times, that's what happens. God fills us up. We sit in church. We hear a message. We get filled up, and then we go out, and we don't apply it. We don't do it. We don't use it. And so it's like trying to carry that cup of hot coffee that's filled too high, and it spills all over you. A lot of times, we're leaking. Other times, it's because we're just sinning. We're just messing up, and the filling God gives us leaks all over the place because we're poking holes in ourselves. And I love that Jesus is so committed to patching us up afterwards. Keith Green, one of my favorite people in the world, um, has this to say. 
He wrote this in a song. He says, as each day passes by, I feel my love run dry. I get so weary and worn and tossed around in the storm. I'm blind to others' needs and I'm tired of planting seeds. I seem to have a wealth of so many thoughts about myself. I want to, I need to be more like Jesus. So for the final thing we look at today, as we're looking for joy, I just want to clearly point to Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate example. Now, some of you guys might be like, okay, like that makes sense. Yeah, Jesus was joyful. He was always happy, right? He always had a big old smile on his face and he walked around town with his head just held high. He was super happy, energetic, charismatic, peppy. Like, that's what, that's what I gotta be like. I gotta be more like Jesus. He was the perfect example of happiness. So that's what it is to be a Christian. You're never happy. You're never down, or, or you're never sad. You're always up. You're never down. Listen, the Bible actually says well, let's read it. In Isaiah, says when it talks about Jesus, this is about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Bible has so many just records of Jesus feeling grief. I just wanted to throw this in so you didn't leave thinking, okay, I gotta just always be happy. I can never be sad. It's sinful to be sad. No, Jesus, Jesus was sad. Jesus was grieved. We know when Jesus' one of his best friends, Lazarus, died, Jesus wept. When he could sense the brokenheartedness of Mary and Martha, his heart broke. One instance says that when Jesus walked by the city of Jerusalem, he looked out of the city and he just broke down in tears and started weeping because he knew. He had come for them. He would die for them, but they would not know it. He knew that they would be blind. They would not receive it. They would not understand it. They didn't understand God's love and plan. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hens gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Now, Jesus is talking about people who've killed prophets and rejected him, but he's not saying, you stupid Jerusalem people, how can you? No, his heart breaks. If you're here today and you feel guilty because of your sin and you think God is just angry at you and just ready to throw a lightning bolt at you, you need to understand, God looks at you and his heart breaks. He says, I love you so much and you're rejecting me. You're not choosing me. You're not following me. I've laid down my life for you. Not this indignant, like, do you know what I did for you? How dare you? No, he says, I, I sacrificed so much for you and you don't understand and that breaks my heart. I think there are some of you in this room who don't know Jesus possibly and God has wept for you. It's amazing. It's an amazing thought that the God of the universe has wept over the idea of us spending an eternity away from him. Jesus is our ultimate example of joy. And now we have this disconnect because it's like, wait, Jesus is joyful. We're talking about joy, but then all this stuff about Jesus' sorrows. What does it mean? How how is Jesus joyful? I want to show you just a really powerful verse. Hebrews 12, 12, or 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set behind him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
I want to ask you, does that look like joy? When you see the cross, does it look like joy? No, to our human eyes, it looks like despair and sadness and death. It was those things. When Jesus was on the cross, he did feel despair. He did feel sadness. He did experience death. But the Bible tells us that even though he had those outward human emotions, in the inside, his heart was bursting for joy because he knew what the cross meant. He knew that God was in control. He knew that God's plan was unstoppable. He knew that God's love was unquenchable. And he knew that every single one of you in this room would have an opportunity to go to heaven and live a life on earth that is filled with the the life and love of heaven because of the cross. And so this is what joy looks like. It's not an outward emotion. You can be sad at times. When a tragedy happens, be sad. It's natural. It's human. But on the inside, carry that joy that pushes through the sadness and comes out the other side stronger and full of life and able to bless people around you with the story of how you held on to hope and how you got through the trial knowing that God was there for you. I just want to end with a definition of joy um, that I wrote as I was writing this study and praying over joy. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, finish with the song. I want to leave you just with this definition of joy. Joy is everything God intended for us back in Eden. The uncontrollable feeling of love and satisfaction as we walk next to him. All earthly happiness is a mere shadow of perfect joy and can never measure up. Though Jesus, or through Jesus, we are given access to the gift of pure joy. So no matter what emotion our bodies feel, our souls can be lifted above it all and into the presence of the fullness of God's magnificent love. Listen, we're going to invite the ushers and um, our prayer team up to pray with you guys. If any of you guys here feel empty today, the holidays have been rough. Maybe this year has been rough. Maybe life has been hard. Life has been difficult. And you feel empty. Come get a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We all need it. I need it constantly. I'm constantly asking people to pray, God, fill me with that fresh filling of your spirit. I'm empty. I need your joy. I need your peace. I need your patience. Come get prayer for that. If anyone here today doesn't know Jesus, maybe you're here today and you're listening. You're like, I want this joy. This joy sounds amazing. This joy sounds fantastic. I would love this joy. But you realize you don't have it? Just come up and pray with one of these guys. Come up and pray with the team. Tell them, hey, I don't know this joy. I've never experienced this joy. I want this joy. Because that's the simple thing. Jesus' death on the cross, it created a way where all you have to do is ask. It's so simple. It's so easy. So thanks for listening, guys. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I ask that during this time you would move hearts. God, so many times we're so empty. We're spent. We spill. There's a leak in our faith. I'll admit it. it, happens to me all the time. And God, we need these reminders that joy is only found in you. We thank you, God, that joy is found in that hope of heaven, that we can look forward and know that something greater is coming. This world of death and despair and sorrow is not the end. There is a whole new world waiting for us. And God, you are with us during this life, this world, 
through the trials, through the storm, to hold our hand, to lift us high, to help us to have joy like you did on that cross, hanging there, knowing all the pain the world could offer, all the sin the world could offer, and yet having joy in your heart, knowing what you were doing to save us, to save your family, to bring your family back. Help us, God, to turn to you. I pray that you would stir hearts and move them, Lord, if they feel empty, to receive your joy. Thank you, God, in your name. Amen.